It's pretty good this morning. Brian, Mary Beth, got the three shoop generations up here this morning. That's awesome. Uh, If you have your Bibles, I hope you do turn to Ecclesiastes. This is going to be the most chipper, positive, encouraging sermon for a while here this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter one. We're going to finish off chapter one this morning. And as you're turning, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you so much for uh, who you are. Lord, we thank you that you are a holy God, that you are a good God. Father, we pray that our, our worship to you will be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Um, thank you that it is only by your grace and because of the work of Christ on the cross that it can be that way. Lord, we... Uh, We pray that uh, our time in your word would be saturated with truth and with the Spirit. God, that you would conform us and mold us into the people that you've created us to be. Thank you for this church family and um, for those who are going through just tough, tough times right now. Just pray a a blessing on them. Ask for comfort and peace. Lord, um, as our nation continues to... um, progress through a, a political season. I just I pray that you'd give the leaders guidance and wisdom and um, that your hand would be over not only Tulsa Bible Church, not only Tulsa, but, but our entire nation, Lord, and you would carry out your will. God, help us to, to do that um, with gentleness, patience, kindness, and compassion. We ask all these things to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit. Amen. I want to start out with something a little bit different this morning. Um, Our vision team at TBC has been working hard and diligently to just ask of God where he's leading us and in some direction for our church. And I want to point this out. It's been a while since I've talked about it, really just addressed it in a hope report not too long ago about our our church logo. Um, This is a a brand new logo for this year. I think we came out with this in, in February or March. Just earlier this year, earlier this spring, we did that uh, during the corona stuff that was out as we were in quarantine, had a little bit of extra time to, to put toward these things. But um, just to walk you through this a little bit, the, the background of the icon up here is, is meant to look like a stained glass window. Okay, so it intentionally reflects that Tulsa Bible Church has history. To it. We've got a legacy. Uh, this church has been here in, in Tulsa area for over 70 years, from my understanding, and, and there's a rich tradition of the gospel going out through the ministry of Tulsa Bible Church, through uh, the, the communities that were impacting uh, missionaries across the world being sent out by Tulsa Bible Church. And it's a, it's a church that is saturated in Scripture. We're a Bible church for a reason. The, the final authority in this church is the word of God, not any man, and so we, we submit to the word. All of our leaders at every level uh, submit to God's will instead of our will and constantly look through that. But this is meant to reflect somewhat of a, of a history and a tradition, a legacy. Look around, many of the, the gray-haired and the bald-head guys around here have, have been a big part of anchoring this church family in the and the orthodox teaching of the faith that has been handed down to us once for all by the saints through the apostles, of course, through the foundation of Jesus. Um, 
this design here, it's, it's interesting. So a lot of people are like, what is that? Kind of like a, a raindrop tilted to the side or, or what's going on there? And of course, naturally you think about a circle being an icon, but we designed it with this little point on here to say that, that this, this aspect, Tulsa Bible Church's history and legacy that we have right here, we're not staying the same. We're going somewhere. Our heart is to go out into Tulsa with the gospel and reach people with the gospel message. But this is a, this is a church that is moving. This is a church that is organic and has life to it. And so that's reflected by this little arrow that's at the, at the peak. Is it, it reflects motion, that the gospel has motion through our service, through our words as we proclaim the gospel to people. And of course, at the, um, at the heart of our icon is the cross. Um, Everything that we do, every aspect of our ministry is grounded and centralized in the gospel of Jesus Christ, who came to the earth in form of man. Jesus was 100% man, 100% God, and he died on a cross for our sins. He rose again on the third day, giving us everlasting life. And so, so as we kind of um, come together as a church and we do ministry in unity with one another, all of these things are reflected in that emblem and in that icon. And we hope that that communicates not only something to the people we're trying to reach in this community, but also to our church family right here. And that we can unify behind the things that are reflected in this, in this icon. And so I just wanted to share that with you really briefly before we uh, turn into Ecclesiastes, all right? If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, found Ecclesiastes chapter one. We're continuing our sermon series entitled this, Nothing and Everything, and of course, if you want to boost your self-esteem, Ecclesiastes would not be the place to start, right? If, um, if Solomon is coaching a little league team, sorry guys, there's no trophies for participation. Uh, if you lose, you weren't that good and you don't deserve a trophy. So he's going to just kind of tell you how it is, right? And it's, it's rather depressing at times, um, Guess what? Maybe next year we just shouldn't play soccer if that's, that's where you're going to be. Uh, and on top of that, at the end of your life, you're going to die. Okay, so let's just level the playing field right away and, and give everybody a, a nice, uh, chipper, positive sermon in Ecclesiastes. Of course, we'll adjust this and lead it to the gospel. In these first chapters, Solomon's favorite style of music would probably be the blues. His favorite play to watch on stage would be a tragedy. And he prefers a movie with a, a very sad ending to it. He doesn't like happily ever after at all. Um, and he's gonna build an argument here for a very bitter experience of life, of going through life, his personal experience of going through life. Douglas Adams, is this a name you guys are familiar with? Douglas Adams wrote a, a novel. It's become a novel. It's, it's been produced into a play, into movies, into all kind of avenues, and there's little shifts in it, but The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this work. Douglas Adams creates this uh, a series of novels, and it's all about the last surviving man on planet Earth before it is taken over by aliens and just annihilated, right? And his name is Arthur Dent. Arthur Dent is saved from annihilation by another alien whose name is Ford Perfect. And he just 
is guided through the galaxy, kind of takes this hitchhike through the galaxy. It all ends at this restaurant at the end of the galaxy where they sit down and they, they have a cup of tea. It's, it's really interesting and um, it's, it's very modern, very postmodern in its genre and in its feel. But through their travels, he learns that the Earth was actually one big supercomputer. And it's built by another massive supercomputer called Deep Thought. And it's built for the purpose of doing one thing. The Earth as a supercomputer was designed to tell us and answer this question. What is the meaning of life? Is there any meaning to life? And so this supercomputer just billions and eons and hundreds of billions of years of calculations finally comes away and it says, I've got it. The meaning to life is what? 42. That's the answer. After all the calculations are done and after the supercomputer does what it's built to do, the answer is 42. And Adam's work has has become known for an underlying assumption of teaching and, and concluding that there is no meaning in life. Um, so just live in the present. Enjoy it. Enjoy life while you have it. It is here today. It is gone tomorrow. And that's, and that's great. We resonate with that. Solomon seems to uh, said exactly what Adam said just thousands of years before he does, but it's, it's still, it's rather depressing. And history recounts a lot of deep thinkers, a lot of theologians, philosophers, writers, novelists, poets, artists, who all come away with a very, it's the, they're all asking the same question. They come away with a lot of the same answers. What is the meaning of life? Why do we exist? Why are we here? Therefore, what is the meaning of my life? What is the reason for my existence? Why should I do anything at all in this world? And what difference is it going to make? Or put it this way, at the end of your life, when you look back and you think about all the years and all the relationships and the things that you have accomplished, at the end of your life, what will you have accomplished? And is any of that even significant? Here's the deal. most people are, are so busy running through life, going from task to task, from job to job, situation to situation, that we don't slow down enough to ask that question. Or we're afraid of what we might find if we try to answer it for ourselves. Let me give you an example. Uh, tomorrow morning, Brian, I need to meet you for a cup of coffee at 8 o'clock in the morning. So whatever you're doing, just drop it meet you at Starbucks. I'm a caramel macchiato guy. I don't know why, but been sweetened over time. So Brian, naturally, he's got, he's got a job. He's got a schedule to keep. The first thing that Brian, this is an illustration, I, I stole this from another pastor. The first thing that Brian's going to say to me is says, okay, Jared, I might be able to meet you at eight o'clock, but what's the reason for the meeting? Why do you need to meet with me? So he slows down and he asks me, even in the little things, what is the reason for getting together tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock? But how many of us stop and ask the same question about our entire life? Not what is the meaning for me to me tomorrow, but what is the meaning for my entire life? Let me give you an example of this. Um, 
And uh, one of the, the greatest group discussions I've ever listened to, uh, it's called a, a Reason for Living, and it's a, an open forum discussion put out by Redeemer Presbyterian Church. You can find it. I'd encourage you to go listen to it. But um, Tim Keller's a speaker, and he gives this illustration of, of Tolstoy. You guys know Tolstoy? Um, when he was 50 years old, he actually had somewhat of a, say, like a midlife crisis. At the age of 50, he was, he was really shaken. And what's amazing is that he wasn't shaken a lot earlier in his life, but I want to share this quote with you. It's, it's a really interesting quote. At the age of 50, here's what Tolstoy said. The question brought me to the edge of the abyss. When I was 50 years old, and the question is this, what will come of what I do today and tomorrow? What will come of my entire life? Or, expressed differently, why should I live? Why should I wish for anything or do anything? Or to put it another way, is there any meaning in life that will not be destroyed by my inevitable approaching death? He continues, my deeds, whatever they may be, will be forgotten sooner or later, and I myself will be no more. Why then do anything? Tolstoy says, I therefore cannot attach a rational meaning to a single act in my entire life. The only thing that amazed me is how I had failed to realize this from the very beginning. How can anyone fail to see this? That's what's amazing. And he, keep, he keeps on. This is a, a long quote. It's possible to live, think about this, it's possible to live as long as life intoxicates us. But once we're sober, we cannot help realizing that it's all a delusion. He says there's nothing funny or witty about it. It's only cruel and stupid. Tolstoy sounds a lot like Solomon. We got some of his thoughts from Solomon. If this life is all that matters, tomorrow we die. Why does anything matter in this life? If we're here today and gone tomorrow. This morning I want to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, the end of the chapter. And Solomon is going to put on two different hats. First, we're going to see Solomon the thinker, the philosopher. Solomon is going to take up his pen, his, he's going to put on his thinking cap, he's going to go to the greatest university, and he's going to do philosophy and try to figure out what is the meaning of life. After that, at the end of the chapter, he's going to put on his do-gooder hat, all right? And, he's going to, and we're going to see the Solomon the moralist and, and what does a, a moral perspective on life give us to understand what is the meaning, the question, what is the meaning in life. But before I do, I want to give you just a, this is a very brief, broad outline of the book of Ecclesiastes. And before I, I give you this outline, I just want to say, as many commentaries as you read on the book of Ecclesiastes is probably as many outlines there are out there of the book. Um, a lot of the thoughts in Ecclesiastes are haphazard, they're random, Solomon seems to contradict himself at one point or another, but generally speaking, most scholars, if you look, they take away this uh, kind of a, a five-point structure 
to the book of Ecclesiastes as, as you look at the, the structure as a whole. In the beginning, last time we looked at Ecclesiastes 1, we saw the pro- prologue where Solomon introduced some of the major themes of his teaching in Ecclesiastes. Beginning in verse 12, we're going to see this today, where it's going to be Solomon's quest for meaning. And chapter 1, 12 through the end of chapter 2 is, is distinct to the rest of the book because there's a lot of personal pronouns. This is Solomon himself, very autobiographical in his speech, talking about his quest for meaning, his pursuits, and what he did to find the meaning in life. Once we get to chapter 3, it's going to shift a little. We don't see as many personal pronouns anymore going through from chapter 3 to chapter 6. We just see a lot of more general principles. But the quest continues. The quest for a meaning in life continues from chapter 3, verse 1, to chapter 6, verse 9. In chapter 6, verse 10, it gets much more uh, proverb-like. You get Kohelet's advice, Solomon's advice on living, and then finally you got the epilogue, everything, everything in the book of Ecclesiastes moves to chapter 12, verse 8 through 14. This is the conclusion that we get from the narrator now of Solomon's teaching that lasted throughout the book, Kohelet's teaching throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Number one in your outline this morning, and number one, what I want you to see in the text is Solomon the thinker. All right, Solomon the thinker. Look down at verse 12, Ecclesiastes 1. It says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven, and it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. The first stop for Solomon the thinker is the university. It's the university. And I want you to notice the manner in which Solomon undertakes his quest. Verse 13, it describes him and he says, I applied my heart. Now one commentator or one translator is going to say, I devoted myself. Heart here in the Old Testament is often a euphemism for the mind. Solomon applied his thoughts, his will, his intellect. But heart in the Old Testament is also, it's a metonymy, it's a part for the whole. Heart often describes the complexities in the totality of who we are as people. So when Moses says to the Israelites in Deuteronomy, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, he means everything, every part of you. Your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions, your actions, everything. Solomon, this is a very thorough quest for Solomon. He applied his heart, meaning he applied everything he had to this thorough investigation of of trying to find the meaning in life. And he applied his heart to do two things. Your text might say something a little bit different, but the two verbs in the ESV version are to seek and to search out. Again, this describes Solomon's quest as sincere and as comprehensive. To search out is the same Hebrew verb that that we read to spy out in the Old Testament. Uh, The the spies, when they went into the land of Canaan and they overviewed everything and and brought the report back, of course, Joshua and Caleb being the two, two guys that brought the positive report back, we can take these guys, right? That's the technical word to spy out. You don't see that very often in the Old Testament. It's, it's a very unique term in many ways. Solomon examined. He spied out the wor- world thoroughly, carefully, and completely. 
And I want you to see verse 13 continues because it tells us how he did it. Look at, look at your text, verse 13. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. By wisdom or, or through wisdom, Solomon was using in his quest. But there's a qualifier after that, the object of what he was pursuing through his wisdom, the arena in which he participated in this quest was all that is done under the heavens. And I want you to highlight that because it's a very significant phrase in the book of Ecclesiastes. Some, some of your translations will say everything that is done under the sun. All right, so Solomon's quest was taken in the natural world, not necessarily the spiritual world. He looked at the things under heaven, not the things in the heavens or above the heavens perhaps because his finite human nature didn't allow him to do that, but this is a very secular, worldly pursuit of the meaning of life. In other words, Solomon didn't go to a seminary. He didn't go to a Bible college as he, he was on this quest to figure out the meaning of life. He sought and he searched out what he wanted to find out through the secular liberal arts school, getting a philosophy degree, and we all love those philosophy majors, don't we? Right? The deep thinkers of our day that just continually think about thinking and what they're thinking reveals about what they're thinking. This is, we've got to redefine wisdom in this context. Verse 13, I, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom, what kind of wisdom? This is wisdom that a person uses to learn about the world apart from God. This is wisdom that a person will use to find out the meaning of life apart from Scripture. I don't think Solomon is consulting Scripture in his quest here. He doesn't seem to be studying the Word of God as much as the world that God created. I love how one man put it. He says, The preacher did not stop to pray or consult Scripture. Instead, he was often running on his own quest for meaning without stopping to consider the majesty of God. Maybe that's why it's vanity trying to figure out the meaning of life apart from God's word and apart from appealing to a supernatural, all-powerful being that we know as the creator of the universe. Maybe that's why Solomon is so depressed. Maybe that's why our world is so depressed and hopeless because they can't find meaning if their observations are only the things that are under the sun, not the things that are over the sun, under the heavens, not the things that are in the the heavens. And his conclusion in verse 13 is very simple. This is an unhappy business that God has given us to be busy with, literally an evil task that God has given the sons of men. One translation says this is a rotten business that God has given to us. This phrase is only used in the book of Ecclesiastes, and it is a synonym for vanity of vanities. This quest is worthless. It is not proving anything. It is an unhappy business to try to find the meaning of life apart from God and who he is. That last verb in verse 13, to be busy with, there's, a, there's two really good options for translating that verb in Hebrew. It is an unhappy business that he has given men to be busy with could mean that he has given men to humble or to subdue them, or to be busy or concerned about. 
So God, God allows this philosopher, this thinker, an endless task of thinking about the world in order to humble him, in order to keep him busy. Any of you guys uh, homeowners out there? Just got mortgages on your, ho- on your home? Did you ever, like, before you owned your first home, yeah, where's Ryan? I need to, need to talk to Ryan today. Um, before you own your first home, you ever think about, like, how exciting it is to, like, go cut your grass in the front yard and, like, paint the walls of the halls and, like, make everything so nice and good and, and fix everything up so that your house is, like, this great, presentable, hospitable place for everybody, right? How, how many years does it take you to get over that as a homeowner? I'll never forget it. We, we bought our first house in Dallas as a student at Dallas Seminary, and um, thankfully we were just blessed by, by so many uh, financial resources through through God's, God's goodness to us. We were able to purchase our first home, uh, took a mortgage out, and just cutting that Bermuda grass in Texas. Man, I took so much pride in that thing. Even to this day, Henry is learning how to cut the grass. Henry does not cut the front yard. He cuts the backyard because nobody can see the straightness of his lines. I don't let him do it. Steve, I got some issues, man. I got some deep-seated issues up here. But, but here's what I came to realize as a homeowner. Um, I, d- I don't really like cutting the grass anymore, right? I don't like taking the time to do it once a week in Tulsa. Um, but I pay to fertilize my grass, <laughs> to keep the bugs out of my grass. I do these regular treatments on my grass. Um, I water my grass, like almost daily I water my grass. And so here I am, I don't want to cut my grass, but I'm like producing the condition so it grows really green and bright and great. This is mindless. This is a busy task that God has given me under the sun to humble me, to subdue me, to keep me busy. Solomon's conclusion, verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. So again, Solomon goes to the university, goes to the schools, he hits the books, and he concludes that life seems to have no meaning. There are crooked things everywhere, and there's no changing those crooked things. Life is like a financial account that refuses to balance. No matter how hard you try, you cannot put your life in a different direction on your own power. Things seem to repeat themselves over and over again. Philosophy students, Solomon is bursting your bubble. If you want to go off, and study the meaning of life. Deep thinking for the deep thinkers of this world, I'm gonna tell you where that path ends ahead of time. It is mindless. And it is an endless pursuit. It is a vanity of vanities. Now, again, don't not do that, but consider your study over the sun as well as under the sun. And maybe, just maybe, that might change everything that you discover. Okay, so first we see Solomon the thinker. Second, we see Solomon the do-gooder. Solomon the moralist, the moral man. All right, and I love how he puts this together. Verse, uh, verse 16, chapter one. If you look back at chapter one, it, one way to teach the entire chapter is you could, you could look at Solomon as the scientist. Verses three through 11, he takes all of his cues from the natural world. 
Uh, you see Solomon the philosopher. You see Solomon the moral man at the end of the chapter. There's, there's all these major um, life career paths and entities that Solomon takes on and hats that he puts on. Look at verse 16. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 17, I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceived that this also is but striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. He who increases knowledge increases in sorrow. Ignorance is bliss, right? You'll notice a slightly different quest in verses 16 through 18 that we had at the beginning of, of this section, verses 12 through 15. Verse 17 begins very similar to verse 13. Verse 17, and I applied my heart. Verse 13, I applied my heart. The difference is that he adds something onto it in verse 17 to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. So if Solomon's first stop as the philosopher was the university, Solomon's second stop as the do-gooder is where? It's, it's May- Mayberry. Everybody seems to be really happy here. And life is great in Mayberry. Maybe there's something that Andy Griffith knows and Opie that I need to learn so I can enjoy and always be smiling all the time, right? And if you guys watch the Andy Griffith show, the black and white episodes are the best, okay? When they transitioned it to color, it it didn't get as good, okay? Go to the black, black and white, all right? Second stop is Mayberry. Really interesting, USA Today did a... um, an article in, in 2018 when everybody was making New Year's resolutions. This is, this is kind of interesting to me. For a decade, from about 2006 to 2016, 80% of the time at New Year's, everybody makes their resolutions, right? And 80% of the time, can you guess what the number one resolution is for people? To lose weight, yeah. To go to the gym, I'm making a resolution to get more healthy in my lifestyle, right? In 2017, there were two resolutions that made the top of the list. And I don't know the statistics, how they investigate this and what surveys find. Every statistic is, 90, 99% of statistics are made up on the spot. So I don't know how they figure this out. 2017, there was two resolutions at the top, to lose weight, and the second one was to be a better person. 2017, the majority of people, if they made a new resolution, they wanted to be a better person person. In 2018, being a better person was at the top of the list. Those pursuing karma, moral goodness, lots of folks that want to be a better person in life, that want to live by the golden rule. Listen to what one commentator says here. Still, the Solomon of Ecclesiastes had not yet considered the claims of morality, So his quest was incomplete. He had tried to learn everything he could, like someone who goes to a liberal arts college and reads all the great books, but he had not yet fully investigated the difference between right and wrong or tried to find meaning and purpose by becoming a better person. So have any of you guys ever tried to live the golden rule before? Wake up, tomorrow's Monday morning, I'm going to do unto others as I would want them to do unto me, right? I'm going to love other people in a way that I would want to be loved myself. How long do you make it in the week before you realize you cannot achieve that goal? 
As, as good as our intentions are, and as much as we want to accomplish that, I barely make it a day before I realize just how selfish I am, right? Flannery O'Connor had a, a really interesting quote, one of her characters in her short, short stories. She said this, I probably shared this with you once before. She writes, there was a deep black conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. The way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin, right? Because if you're a good person, and if you're constantly doing good to others as you would want them to do it, who needs Jesus? You don't need a Savior. You're a pretty good guy at the end of the day. Remember the uh, elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son? We, we, all, we all know the prodigal, what happened there. Remember the, remember the elder brother? Because he was the one that was always doing good to his father. He was the one that never did anything sinful. He didn't go and squander the wealth. He didn't go live lavishly like the prodigal did. He was the do-gooder. He was the moralist in the story. And he was lost as the day is long. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's not our evil deeds that damn us to hell through sin. Sometimes it's our good deeds done apart from motivation of Christ's love that make us more of an instrument of hell than, than anything else. And so we have to be very careful. Solomon, again, he puts on his moral hat. I'm going to try morality. I'm going to try to figure out if, if life has meaning, if I can be a, a good person. And, and of course, all of us know in the New Testament who the most moral guys were. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, and all of us know what Jesus says to them. Right? The gospel is so distinct from morality. And finding meaning in life, you're going to have to go past just being a good person as much as you would hope that would do it. There's something so much deeper in our problem of sin than just being good or doing good to other people. Verse 17, I, I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and I perceived that this also is a striving after the wind. Um, verse 14, you'd, again, it's repeated, all is vanity and striving or chasing after the wind. The meaning of, of striving and chasing after the wind is elusive in this context. It's a very difficult Hebrew word, but it is very clear. The interpretation is, is the same, no matter who you read or who you look to. To strive or to chase after the wind. There's, there's probably about four, there's four good interpretations of what verb this could actually come from. Okay, so rea is how you pronounce the Hebrew. Rea is actually the word to shepherd in the Bible. Are you shepherding after the wind? To feed or to shepherd would be one translation. Uh, to associate with the wind, to strive after the wind, or to desire. You got four possibilities for what that Hebrew word means, striving after the wind. A uh, word is probably best connected to an Aramaic root word. If you look at Hosea 12, verse 1 and 2, depending on your translation, there's a, a verse there that says something about um, uh, Ephraim feeds on the wind or strives after the wind in terms of their sin before God, and that helps us to understand how this word is functioning in Ecclesiastes. But, 
But whether it means to, to feed, to associate, to strive, to desire the wind, the implication is the same. The conclusion is the same. Life on earth is futile. It is frustrating. It'll get you nowhere apart from God and apart from truth and apart from Christ. So, Solomon, buddy, just uh, here's a little Prozac for you. Cheer, cheer up, man. We'll take this Xanax and we'll be good, okay? Let's, let's apply this. Let's apply this passage. Ecclesiastes 1. Number one. Meaning in life apart from Christ only leads to frustration. Meaning in life apart from truth, apart from Christ, apart from what God has revealed about himself will only lead you to frustration. Please, let Solomon burst your bubble. Don't go, Solomon is telling you, he is begging you, don't go through life trying to answer these questions apart from God. If you do, you will be frustrated to no end. It is a vanity and it is a striving after the wind. Solomon did his best to find meaning under the sun. He should have been looking over the sun or maybe even through the sun. From a mere earthly perspective, our best thinking only leads to frustration. The best we can think about will only lead to frustration. In other words, if we try to understand the world on our terms rather than on God terms, we will never escape Ecclesiastes chapter 1. If you try to fully understand the world on your terms, on the world's terms, on the secularist terms, you will never escape Ecclesiastes chapter 1. It is a depressing outcome. Human reason can only take you so far. Information will not automatically lead to transformation. All the learning in this world is empty. It is vanity apart from God, apart from truth. Postmodern generation, please, please listen to what Solomon is saying. If there is no truth, if there is no God, you're right. But if there is, everything else is Changes everything, absolutely everything. Number two, apart from Christ, morality makes you miserable. Apart from Christ, living a moral life will make you miserable. Many people confuse Christianity with morality, and we cannot do that as Christians. Perhaps you are trying to be a better person. Perhaps you are trying to live out of the golden rule. Perhaps you, like me, find yourself failing at that day by day by day, needing Christ. The answer from Scripture is very clear to the moralist. It is the same answer to the philosopher, and that is this, repent. <laughs> if you are living a moral life, what ensures you that anything different is going to happen to you when you die as opposed to anybody else? The evil man might live longer than you. He might have more blessings and riches on this planet than you. It doesn't make sense. Pursue your morality. If you do that apart from Christ, there's a, there's a verse in the New Testament that goes something like this. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, right? Do you find that the most moral people that you meet apart from Christ are also the most miserable people? Because they are working really, really hard at being moral and yet cannot be sustained through life. Because we have a deeper problem than morality. If our deepest problem was being a good person, then actually trying harder to be a good person might be the answer. But that's not good news. That's bad news. 
Because according to Scripture, all of us are inseparably bad apart from the unchangeable grace and the divine grace of God that we find in the gospel through Jesus. There is no amount of good that will rescue you from the amount of sin that you are inflicted with from Adam. And so we bring our morality, we bring our good acts to the cross, and we repent of those things just as we bring our sin to the cross, and we repent of those things. Because what? Coming to to God on your own efforts is the essence of what sin is. Doing it your way instead of God's way is what makes people very tired and heavy laden with a load that you cannot carry. The Bible's answer, the Bible's answer is to repent, to repent, acknowledge that you are a sinner and no matter how much good you do, you are still going to die one day and you need everlasting life from Christ. And so the good news is good news because it's not about what we do to get to God, it's about what Jesus did for us so that we can come to God on his terms rather than on our terms. If we mistake morality from the grace of God, all we are doing is pushing a better life now lifestyle here. And we cannot do that at Tulsa Bible Church. And if you are caught in the trap of thinking that if you do better tomorrow than you did today, you're going to end up in a good place, please, please see that Scripture story is so different than that. And that grace is absolutely needed for you to have everlasting life with God. There is all of our, the best of our deeds, Isaiah says, are filthy rags before God. If anybody was saved in the New Testament based on their deeds, it was the Pharisees. And we know how they came out. So we repent of those things and we come to God and we, we ask for his forgiveness. We confess that we are sinners in desperate need of his grace. And as an act of repentance and confession and placing our faith in Christ, he gives us everlasting life as a gift, not something we earn or not something we live for to get to that gift. It is given by divine grace only. Ecclesiastes, if it doesn't say anything else, Ecclesiastes says this, apart from Christ, there is nothing and there is no meaning whatsoever. But with Christ, everything has meaning and everything becomes significant. Listen to the words of the preacher, all right? Grab a cup of coffee with Solomon and we'll continue this. I'm gonna pray in just a little bit, but before I do, I want to um, invite the deacons and those helping out, serving the Lord's Supper. If you guys don't mind to, uh, to go grab those trays and um, wanna just mention a few things before we do this as uh, elements come around. Uh, just as a, a brief announcement here, Bill Biggs, you guys probably know Bill and Carrie. Uh, Bill Biggs is, has been placed on hospice and things are getting really tough for, for Bill and for Carrie, for their families. So I want you guys to be praying for them. There's a website that you can go to if you do know Bill, if you need more information about them. Um, I want to point you to um, Don Dunn or Dave Sargent, uh, or the Lighthouse Flock. Anybody in the Lighthouse Flock can help you out there. He's got a website. You can go to caringbridge.org, uh, read some messages, drop some messages for Bill as, uh, as they're facing some difficult, difficult times with his, his health and, and how things are looking there. And just pray, pray for them, pray for their family. 
As the Lord's Supper comes around, our, our deacons have been working to try to do this in the safest and healthiest way possible. I want to remind you that the trays are going to come around. Please do not grab the trays. The deacons and those serving will bring those to you, and all you need to do is grab a cup. And the cups, there'll be two stacked, one upon the other. And the bottom cup is the bread, and the top cup is the juice. And so make sure you take two cups. Try not to touch the other cups if you can. If you can just try not to breathe, sneeze, or anything like that while the Lord's Supper is coming around, that'd be great. Um, you guys know I'm being a little facetious, but we do want to we do want to try to do this in as a healthy and uh, comfortable way as possible. And if you personally are not comfortable taking the Lord's Supper during coronavirus, listen, we understand. Uh, you make your own decisions for yourself, and we respect those, and we we totally get it. So just want to mention that before we talk about that, or before the elements come around. Um, the deacons are going to come down. They're going to pass out these elements. Joe and Hannah are up here. They're going to lead us in a song. I want you to hang on to those elements. I'm going to come back up. We'll talk a little bit about the Lord's Supper as we do this as a community together before we partake together, okay? Let me pray for us, and, and I'll pass it off to these guys. Father in heaven, again, we just um, we thank you for the truth of who you are in, in your word. Lord, we thank you that... Um, You've given us wisdom from Solomon here. Uh, you've, you've saved us a lot of steps in the process of finding out what is the meaning of life, what is the meaning for our lives. I pray that we would adjust our lives accordingly to mesh up with the truth of Scripture, to come to a relationship where you are front and foremost of all things, where you are at the center of all things. God, as we, uh, as we take the Lord's Supper as a, a church family, as a community together, I pray that, that this time would be a unifying time in our church. It would be a time of acceptance and forgiveness and peace and unity. Um, not, only, not only with our church family, but with all of those who are gathered this morning rightfully proclaiming the true gospel of Jesus Christ in Tulsa and around the world. God, we thank you for your love for us and the extent of your love that we see so clearly depicted in the Lord's Supper. And we pray that we would all be enriched uh, by this ritual that we do together as a community. We ask all these things to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit. Amen.